Hey, what's happening? Welcome to the Influential Communicator, the go-to podcast for your weekly dose of storytelling, speaking, and communication bullets to help you craft stories that sell and deliver presentations that win. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani. So without further wait, let's get into it. When I think of an influential communicator, I think of Zoe Charles. Now get this, people. From growing up in a bohemian poor family, sharing her apartment's one bedroom with her sister and being guided by her imaginative, caring and art-loving mother, home was an adventure. But school was that little bit different. In Zoe's words, she described it as lonely. When she spoke, she struggled to get to really get people to listen. But landing a speaking role in Aladdin in theatre was about to change everything. So even though she only had one line, this one line was the moment where she truly began to reclaim her influence. Many years later, Zoe went from influencing kids by running a $200 million segment of the Barbie brand to later enrolling in a PhD program at MIT in Harvard to scratch her itch of going deeper into the world of influence. Fast forward to today, well, life's a little bit different because Zoe's mission is to help smart and kind people become influential. With her position as a senior lecturer at Yale and is the author of an amazing new book, people, titled Influence is Your Superpower. And today, ladies and gents, I've pinned her down, okay, specifically to discuss her secrets for becoming influential and getting what you want without compromising your value. Zoe, welcome to the show, my friend. What's good? Thank you so much, Ravi. I'm excited to be here. It's Monday morning where I am, and this is the best way to start my week. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, I'll tell you what, do you do you do many podcasts with people from the UK or is a lot of your reach mainly from the US? I do some with the UK. It's more in the okay. US, but okay. we had a great launch in the UK where in both the UK and US, the book launched simultaneously. And in that first week, it got to be selling as quickly as the second fastest selling book in both the UK and the US. Wow, that is incredible. That's amazing. Well, congratulations, because I heard you initially from the Ed, how we ended up connecting afterwards through that um through that experience that I had from listening to this show. And now I want to shine a light for all the UK folk uh, and US folk listening to this show. And what I'd love to really begin with you, Zoe, was there was something in your book which I absolutely loved. And it was actually, I was actually a little bit shocked. I'm not going to lie, because you said that back in the day when you were growing up, your mom actually empowered you with mental health days. And I mean, people struggle with that now, giving, you know, this idea of you get a mental health day is like a, a perk that companies give now. And your mom was clearly way ahead of her time by you know, allowing you to do that, guiding you to do that as a young child. Your mom's background was in art and now you teach influence as a professor. So I'm curious to know, where did this passion really ignite from influence given what you were absorbing as a young kid was something completely different? As a young child, and this is true of so many academics and so many people who end up pursuing super nerdy careers and doing PhDs and stuff. I was just very shy. And also when I was growing up, it was very uncool to be smart. So 
if you were being treated as a smart kid by your teachers, regardless of whether you were or weren't or to what degree, this was an alienating experience from your classmates. Like there were kids who got funneled into gifted programs and it was terrible. And like, you know, you get labeled teacher's pet and things like that. And you're like, oh God, no, just don't say that thing. Like, don't give me special privileges. Don't put me in some special thing. Don't show my work to other kids. And this all contributed along with me just legitimately being a nerd and really enjoying reading and things like that. I would stay inside from research with my research recess, <laughs> the Freudian slip there. I would stay inside <laughs> from research with my best friend and we would just read books. So we really were nerdy, but we were very much in our own little bubble where I didn't understand how kids socialized with each other. And I had this amazing mom who was super, super fun. And I got to hang out with her super cool friends. And, you know, like they played in punk bands and she'd take us to bars to go <laughs> dance with them. And then they, she had these new age friends who did Ouija boards at parties and stuff, and we would get to go hang out with them. So I, I felt like one of the adults, but I didn't feel like one of the kids. And I had to actually train myself to have worse grammar to interact with kids. Like I remember learning, okay, kids don't say she said, and he said, and I said, kids say she went, he went. And so I went and she goes. And so I was actively trying to shift things like that. Like you don't say whom, you just can't be a child who says whom. And you have to say whom, <laughs> even if you know that it should be whom. So yeah, I was very much a big nerd and I wanted to have friends and I wanted to be cool. And this is so sad, Ravi. My sights were very low. So there was this kid named Ben I had a crush on for ages and, and all the other girls did. And so like, obviously I knew when we got to be teenagers, it wasn't like he was ever going to go out with me. But my aspiration was that when some girl canceled on him for a date, he would call me to hang out as friends. <laughs> like this was like, like that would be so amazing if, <laughs> if life could be that great. Yeah. So this is how not only was I not influential, but I just didn't even imagine actually being able to be cool. I just imagined being able to be like the sidekick. But theater, like you said, was my entree into the world of not just influencing people, but learning how to connect with people. So for anyone listening who's done theater, you know, even if you weren't one of these people, a lot of the drama kids are nerds who don't know how to connect with other people well, but we get trained and practice in learning how to feel and express emotions and actually make eye contact with one another. And it's this very cool experience where you do learn how to connect more deeply than most kids do at your age. And then it's also not unusual that those of us who get started in drama and theater end up working in sales at some point. So I started doing theater in high school and then in college, when I needed to make some money, I was one of the people who could just easily make money in sales. I did not have glamorous jobs. I was working door-to-door -door sales, selling dry cleaning discount books. I was working as a telemarketer, selling subscriptions to Golf Digest. That training in theater and then training in sales, which is such fertile ground for learning how to get rejected and such fertile ground for learning how to actually 
make the close and you find that you influenced someone and made a connection when they actually say yes. It's not just this feeling that you have that maybe they kind of liked you, but they were actually willing to commit, put their money where their mouth is. I wish everyone on earth would get to have an experience in sales. And for me, theater was what it took for me to even have the courage to be able to work in sales. Well, I'll tell you, I think you and I are more alike uh, than I thought because I was the dude flying business class into friend zone when I was a kid. Like I was the, <laughs> like I, I was like, yeah, come on, let's hang out as friends. Like I could never really make that boyfriend spot. It was always the guy who was, you know, like captain of the soccer team, as we would say over here or, or whatnot. But it's funny as well. I stumbled into theater uh, in my teenage years. My best friend's dad was a playwright and I didn't even know it. And it served me so well during my time in sales. And it was, it's amazing. And I totally resonate with that and connect with that. And I think, you know, it's funny listening to you now and hearing, well, actually uh, reading about your story and your journey. It's very clear to me that your North Star was always very, you had an intellectual curiosity for influence and communication. And it seems though your heart's always followed that. Now, inside of your book, you speak about asking yourself the question, what do you actually want? And I actually think as a human being, that's one of the hardest questions to actually answer. So my question for you here is, is could you tell us a about a time in life where you've used influence to get what you desire. But then when you got it, you were like, hold up, uh, this is out of alignment. Yeah, I'll tell you probably the biggest one. So I'll set romantic relationships aside. Many of those have been disasters, but of the garden variety kind. But the biggest, biggest one in my life, the biggest success and failure has been me getting my dream job at Yale, where I had been studying and researching behavioral science at MIT and then at Harvard. And on the job market, the way that academia works, so this was in marketing, and there are every year only a tiny number of people across the whole world who get a job, rookie marketing job at a top school, because schools don't hire every year. So maybe there are like three of us that year who get a behavioral marketing job at one of the fancy schools. And I get to be one of the superstars getting hired to a tenure track job. And for me, Yale was my dream job. I had actually been here in New Haven. My baby daddy worked on the faculty at Yale already and we were our relationship was on the rocks, but I had been here getting to know people and the ethos of the school is educating leaders for business and society. So there's this social alignment in terms of contribution and social justice and things like that, that aligns with my values. I wanted to be at Yale more than anywhere. And I get this job. And then over the next few years, it, I realize subconsciously before consciously that it's just doing this academic research job is deeply out of alignment with what I love most, which is actually teaching and speaking and writing for normal people to actually have an impact in the world rather than writing a small number of research papers that take years and then they get read by only a few people. And I didn't care about contributing to marketing theory at all. Zero. So I wasn't getting myself to do the kind of work that would have had me be able to get tenure in this amazing department. In 2019, 
I ended up stepping off the tenure track completely. And now I've changed my job so that all I'm doing is the only responsibility I have is teaching. And I teach just seven weeks a year, four sections of this super popular class called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. And then the rest of the year, I get to do whatever I want. But this is funny, Ravi. So I I got to use whatever influence I had, have this amazing success, great job. And then I was like, oh no, it's not really a good fit. It's very deeply embarrassing and shameful. But because I was doing a good job teaching, they helped me negotiate this pivot. In the pivot pivot and job change that I negotiated, I asked for the big coup was, can I not have to go to any meetings? I just don't want to have to go to any meetings ever. And they were like, yeah, sure, no problem. But what happened, Ravi, is that when I wasn't required to go to meetings, I started going to more meetings. <laughs> and it's great. Like I go, I actually go to a ton of meetings now. And people in my department are excited to see me. They're like, oh hey, Zoe's here. And I'm so happy. I'm like, hey guys, great to see you. <laughs> it's so much more pleasant to be somewhere where you want to be rather than because you have to be. And I have given my students that same opportunity where seeing what happened for me where I don't have to be there, but then I'm motivated to be there. I stopped not just grading attendance, but I stopped even taking attendance for my class. So it's the same thing for students showing up to my class on any given day, about 90% of them are there. Some of them show up every single day without ever missing one. And we're just so happy to be there. And I'm happy to see like, hey, great to see you. I'm so happy that you came. It's this privilege to be able to be in this kind of situation and to be able to create that kind of environment where people are there by choice. That is fascinating to me because it's such a divergence from what I saw anyway, growing up in university, I saw like, okay, Ravi, where are you? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Like it was such a very different environment. There were great lecturers and there were others where I was like, oh, do I have to go? Can I just study for the exam? And it's really interesting. Did you, did you model somebody or was it intuitively you felt like this was the best way to communicate with your audience? Um, I can't say that there was a specific person, but I'm someone who is just passionate about personal development. So I'm always going and taking classes and workshops and trainings and doing these kinds of things. And I know that even when I'm motivated, it's hard to be there all the time. It I have I still have a lot of resistance that I have to get through. And I also know that when I don't show up to something, a lot of the times it's just because I had something that was very important in my life that was something else I needed to do or wanted to do or someone I had to take care of. There's so many reasons to not be able to show up for something. And I just wanted to give people that respect. And so feeling how it, how it felt to not have to be there and then I want to be there also aligns with my whole philosophy and teaching of influence. And this is relevant for everyone working in sales, right? This idea that people are resistant to being told what to do we have this inner two-year-old that's like, you're not the boss of me. You can't make me do this thing. And so when we're approaching them with some influence agenda, like especially if we're trying to sell them something, there is this natural resistance where if we put pressure on them, they push back and they fight 
and they they want to resist. But if we step back and we dial off the pressure and we just make it this open invitation, then they're more inclined to lean forward and be curious and be open to the idea of saying yes. Also, when people feel as though they said yes out of their own volition, there was no pressure, they have this sense of control, then they're more likely to be happy with the outcome that they agreed to, they're more likely to follow through, and obviously less likely to have buyer's remorse or regret after having felt like they were pressured into this thing that then they cause us trouble trying to get out of. Well, I tell you what, that segues beautifully into exactly why we're here today. So ladies and gents, if you're listening, I urge you to press pause right now, run and get a sharp pencil or pen and paper because you're going to want to take a lot of notes. I promise you that. So let's get into it, Zoe. Now, you mentioned a few things there about resistance, overcoming objections, and I want to get into that. But I want to take it back ever so slightly to something you talk about in your book about the gator versus the judge in terms of the way that human beings process information. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're talking about there? Yes. The mother of all misunderstandings in influence is this idea that people are making their decisions rationally and consciously that we do. (laughs) And so we're trying to persuade other people with facts and information and data, thinking that this is how to be respectful and how we can help them make the best choice. The misunderstanding is that the reality is that not just in air quotes, consumers or customers, but all of us, all of the time, are vastly more influenced by this unconscious and much more powerful part of our mind that is having gut reactions and perceiving the world in this very, very simple, primal way of, is it an opportunity? Is it a threat? And can I ignore it? And I use the analogy of a gator. Gators are some of, and maybe the most efficient creatures on the planet. They have a body that weighs half a ton, brain the size of a walnut, and they're so efficient that actually they can go up to three years without eating anything at all. And this is really important from an influence perspective that we're imagining that we're asking and offering and providing opportunities that people, we think that they're going to be carefully considering them and then saying yes or no. But the reality is that almost all of our influence attempts get ignored. So this gator that we might have imagined when I said opportunities and threats, you think that it's going to be fight or flight or other F words, response to things that come along in a gator's life. But the majority of the time, what the gator does is absolutely nothing. This gator, when it does take action, is so fast that you can hardly see it move. But unless, say, some opportunity, talk about something edible and tasty, unless that creature or piece of meat or whatever it is shows up in their bite zone, which is the area between their nose and their tail where they don't have to move their body, but they can just move their head. Unless it shows up in their bite zone, almost guaranteed they do nothing. But when it's in their bite zone, they snap it up so quickly you can hardly see it move. 
So it's efficient in the sense that it's lazy and it's also fast. It's efficient in the sense that it can take care of all kinds of things on autopilot because these things are, it's evolved to do these things or they've become habitual. So same with us, we get these ingrained habits and behaviors and things like if you think about riding your bicycle or driving a car or reading, these are actually very complicated behaviors. But because we've been practicing them for so long, we don't have to consciously think about them at all. So that's gator stuff. This is the dominant way that we navigate the world. So it's so important that people trying to influence us or us trying to influence other people take into account, for the most part, people will have unconscious, emotional reactions to us. They're going to try to ignore us. And they're likely, they have this all this inertia and momentum to keep doing whatever is habitual or whatever is really easy. And then on the other side, this tiny little sliver, maybe only 5% of our thinking and our behavior gets driven by the other side of this, which I use the analogy of the judge, like a human judge, very slow, conscious, deliberative, effortful, considers only one case at a time, and tries to be objective and rational, but like a human judge is biased and influenced by the domain of the gator, emotions, preferences, habits, social biases, all of these inner forces that lead the judge to be trying to rationalize the decisions that they want to make even more so than just reasoning through to find an objective answer. This was kind of a lot of intellectual abstract stuff. Um, We can make it more concrete with a specific study done with actual judges, where this is a case, actually not a case, it's more than 1,100 cases, looking at what Israeli judges are deciding when prisoners come up for parole. Over the course of the day, at the beginning of the day, there's about a two-thirds chance that they'll send a prisoner home on parole. And then that number declines to pretty much zero. There's a spike up to two-thirds chance again, declines down to zero, another spike, and then declines down to zero by the end of the day. And I know, Ravi, you already know what is driving this because you've read the book, but the answer to what is driving the spikes, anybody listening, just think about what you might imagine the reason would be And maybe you've guessed it, it's just a lunch break. They're just hungry and they're tired. What happens is this, the process that I'm calling the judge process, because it's slow and it's effortful, it gets fatigued and it gets depleted. And that can happen by hunger. It can happen by physical exhaustion, mental exhaustion. Anyone who's done Um, say, a number of interviews over the course of the day or a number of pitches over the course of the day, you just get really tired. Even just sitting and listening in classes over the course of the day, it gets really tiring. You get distracted. When you don't have a lot of mental resources, you end up in gator territory. So you're just doing the thing that's easy, which for these judges is, hey, they're a criminal, send them back to jail. When I read this in your book, you know where my mind immediately went to? I thought, oh my. So hold on. If you're a salesperson and you're reaching out to a CFO, 
who may traditionally be on the surface seen to be more in judge mode, is it better to approach them earlier on in the day and earlier on in the week because they're not they're going to have less decision fatigue and there's probably less people annoying them so they're going to be like they're going to be more well less resistant to really receiving that pitch or whatever it might be in their direct messages is that a comparison that's fair to make so there are some people in the influence business who are trying to put people into gator mode to have them make a bad decision or i guess the objective isn't specifically to have them make a bad decision, but to have them make a gut decision that goes in the direction that you want. I find this to be manipulative, but the biggest tool of influence in the world of transactional sales is scarcity and urgency. So you rush people and you say, hey, you know, today only while supplies last, here's the deal that I can get for you right now in this conversation, but if you walk away, you, you know, you're not going to get the same offer again. A lot of salespeople are trying to put people into gator mode, especially feeling like, oh, I'm not going to be able to have this offer again. And to say yes, what happens when we pressure people into saying yes, if they do scarcity, by the way, is also the tactic that leads most often to buyer's remorse or regret people trying to get out of it. It definitely doesn't create any kind of long-term relationship or opportunity. So let's say the kind of people that you're talking about, they want the CFO to say yes. And they also want the CFO to feel good about saying yes and to follow through with a commitment and want to be in this potentially fruitful relationship for a long time. So in that case, it's not just that you need their judge to be able to say yes, but you need to first reach them like every single other person through the gator so that they want to say yes. And then you give them the data and the information and the facts that will allow the judge to rationalize that preference that they have for saying yes. So I agree with you, Ravi, you and I and people like us who want people to be happy to say yes to us and opening up possibilities for long-term relationships, we want to approach them when we when they do have bandwidth. So the time of day is just one piece of that. But yes, this is an important piece where generally you don't want to be the obstacle between that person and lunch, right? Like you would rather see them, talk to them, pitch them after lunch than before lunch and things like this. But you don't know really what somebody's rhythm is or schedule is like. So to make it super, super simple, just asking somebody when would be a good time to talk with you about has them find that time for you on their schedule where they do have the bandwidth, but it's not just that you have also had them commit to being as open-minded as possible when you do pitch this thing, because they've told you that this is a good time. So that's just a very, very simple tweak that some of us can make between saying, how about this time? Would that be a good time for you? To saying when is a good time and allowing them to choose. I love that, Zoe, because it, it actually takes me back to a, a standard sales presentation or any presentation. You know, you've you've done so many keynotes on different stages and TEDx talks. You can see a consistent pattern with speakers 
starting with a highly emotive connection focused story to you, as you would say, get through the gator. And then they present the statistics or the facts or whatever it might be versus what you'll see in a lot of presentations is a lot of facts and stats from the get go. And I don't know about you, but my mind goes to, (laughs) I'm like, I need to get out of this room, man. Um, But it definitely speaks to your thesis there, which is great. Now, what I actually want to take this to is a very interesting exercise that I know that you do with a lot of your students where you challenge them to say no for 24 hours. Now, as a recovering people pleaser, I was very uh, interested to know the why behind that. And when you've done it with students, the impact that it's had on people, well, their perception, influence, people saying yes to them and all that good stuff. Let's challenge everyone listening to this show right now to consider taking on the 24 hours of no challenge. And it's so fun and it's so scary for most of us. All you do is you say no for 24 hours to every single person who asks you for something or invites you to do something. And caveat with obviously don't ruin your life. And with also you, like everyone else on earth all the time, have the right to change your mind, right? The idea of 24 hours of no is that in my influence course, this is the first challenge that we do where people are like, what? That's not even influence. What are you talking about? Where one of the big insights is that almost every single one of us, like you and me, Ravi, are people pleasers, even more than we realize. So even those of us who realize that we're people pleasers, this no challenge shows us, like, oh my God, I'm actually trying to say yes to everything, even without noticing this. And everybody, many of us, when somebody asks us to do something or invites us to do something, we just look at our schedule and see if it fits into the calendar, see if there's a spot, which is completely crazy, right? That's just saying I have no agency over my life. My time is the most valuable thing that I have, but it is up for grabs for everyone in the universe. Then what happens when we feel that embarrassing and kind of funny feeling of how hard it is to say no is that we also start to realize, well, this is how other people feel too when we're asking them to do something or make an invitation. We're so likely to have them say yes because it's just the default. And a lot of research finds that people are two or three times more likely to say yes than we imagine that they will be. And because we have this mistaken hypothesis, we ask much less often. We ask fewer people. We ask for less than we could or we should because we're not expecting them to say yes and we're wrong about that. Then there's this further piece that's kind of like a magic ninja type self-development process that goes on with saying no, which is that as you become more comfortable saying no, you become more comfortable with the idea of other people saying no. You realize it's really not about them. It's not about you. And because you're more comfortable with them saying no, when you're asking them or making offers, you don't have so much pressure there and they feel less put on the spot. And so they're more inclined to say yes. So they don't have that inner two-year-old being like, you're not the boss of me. Because you're just saying like, hey, I have this really cool idea. Would you like to hear about it? There's no resistance to something like that. 
Right. I look forward to playing this game with my wife. And when she says, why are you behaving like that? I'm going to say, listen, Zoe told me to. So blame me on Zoe. Um, Let me say two <laughs> things about this before we move on. First of all, <laughs> if you were in my seven-week boot camp class, you would have actually already committed to not practicing any getting challenges on your wife. In the class, every week, we have three challenges. Outside of the class, you do a getting challenge, you do a giving challenge, and you do a gratitude challenge. And they work together in specific ways. But with our partners, roommates, anyone we interact with a lot, I don't want to be destroying relationships. But the other thing, the second thing is that this 24 hours of no challenge is no to each person. It doesn't Mm. have to be no to each request. So somebody comes to you and they ask you for something. And it should be even including romantic partners, roommates, kids, people we live with, you know, our boss, employees say no one time to each person so that you experience what that feels like and you experience their reaction. You see that you didn't die and they didn't kill you. (laughs) And then beyond that, if you're just practicing saying no, 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 if you liked it, keep going, right? And it doesn't have to be just one day. I did a whole month. I called it November (laughs) and I did no challenge for a month with some of my Facebook friends, which was really fun. But you get to... Uh, to a point where, okay, I've now I understand I can say no to my wife. I can say no to my husband. I can say no to my mom, to my daughter, my son. And it doesn't do anything to just keep being like, no, 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 no. Forget about it. No. <laughs> See, I, I find this fascinating because it goes back to giving your brain evidence that when a no occurs, it doesn't result in a disaster scenario. So you really get more comfortable with it. And that's just fascinating for people, please. So, hey, uh, ladies and gents, if you're listening to this, this doesn't include your spouse. As you know, play. We don't want to destroy relationships up in here. It totally can. But just, yeah, preserve your relationship. And Safely. Of relationships and more broadly than romantic relationships, what I'm really trying to do with my work on influence is to shift us away from transactional thinking and toward relationship Mm. thinking. And this includes when we're asking for something or when we're saying no, especially to think of it as, are you saying no to that thing or are you saying no to that person? In some cases, you want to say no to that person in that relationship and you just want to be really clear. No, I'm not interested. Nope. Thank you. Very, very clear. But in other cases, you want to say no to that idea, but not no to that person. So I want to express warmth when I'm saying no. So I'll say, oh, thank you for asking me, Ravi. Maybe it's thank you for asking me. That sounds like such a cool project. Like it's not the right thing for me right now, but like it's, I wish you luck on it. That sounds great. And it also might sound like, um, hey, thank you for asking me, Ravi. It sounds really, really horrible. I would actually hate to do anything like the thing that you just described, but good luck with that. And then either way, it's still okay, right? Like you can feel that I'm not saying no to you. I'm just saying no to your absolutely terrible idea. But even then you can tell (laughs) it's not that the idea is actually terrible. It's just for me. It's just not a good fit for me. And so it doesn't stop you from coming again later and being like, hey, Zoe, guess what? I have another terrible idea. Do you want to hear it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And also the way you've worded that there, it just sounds so warm versus no. I think it's the the negativity around that word. But as you know better than anybody through your time in theater, it's not just about what you say, but it's how you say it. And what you said there about 
the transaction versus building a long-term relationship and your mission around that. It leads me to this next question, which is, you talk about the power of simply asking, you know, you just mentioned it now. And I think one of the things that we're seeing in the world right now is, especially in the pandemic, where a lot of people were spending a lot of their time online, what I call the pitch slapping in people's DMs hit the roof, (laughs) right? And what I'd love to ask you about is when entrepreneurs, salespeople, somebody who wants something specific, how do they go for an ask? Because a lot of people say, you said ask, but is it boiled down to the magnitude of the ask versus, hey, can you book a demo with me tomorrow versus hey, can you ask for something small? Like what I'm trying to say here really is, does the magnitude of the ask actually matter? The magnitude of the ask matters in a lot of different ways. And what I would recommend in most cases is to share the grand vision, but focus your efforts on the baby step. So what is the next step? So if we're talking about a sales context, the next step is not going to be the close until they're already excited and until you've already shared and you've already done the pitch, right? So the grand vision is I have this incredible opportunity to change your life or your work in a meaningful way. And maybe the next baby step is that you get back to me to say whether this is something that you might possibly be interested in. And then we go to scheduling. But like even just the jump from out of the blue, I'm reaching out to you to say, hi, I'm this person with this offer. And then scheduling, like that's actually too big of a leap for most Mm. people until they already know that this is something that they needed. If I was looking for something, like if I'm looking for a course on storytelling for my sales team and you reach out, Ravi, and you say like, hey, I do trainings in storytelling for sales team. I'm like, yes, let's book it. Let's choose a time. But if I'm running a sales team and I haven't even been thinking about storytelling as something that could be helpful for them or as something that could be trained or as something that I might invest in, you're reaching out to me for the first time. And all you might be asking me is, is this something that... that you might potentially be interested in and I could send you some more, I could send you something, right? Or if you wanted to have a conversation, we could have a conversation, but you're not going to send me your Calendly link. Like the pitch, I think that's the pitch slapping maybe. That you're, yeah, but wait, exactly. What is, what is yeah. the pitch slapping? Say more about it. I, I, I suppose the pitch slap is somebody adds you on LinkedIn, right? Um, they say, hey, we'd love to connect Zoe. And you're like, okay, cool. I'll, ac- I'll accept that. You press accept. Within a minute, you get, hey, Zoe, so what we do here at Company X is we help people do why. Would you like a book a demo? Like that is like, whoa, where? Like slow down, you know, slow down. Yeah. And so it's both the magnitude of the ask and the timing. Yeah. Okay. Right? So for you, it's about relevancy and context. Well, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to say, Mm. here's this thing that we do. Is that something that you might be interested in hearing more about? Right. And then I can just be like, yeah, no, actually, I'm not. Yeah. I don't need to respond. And you could even Mm. tell me, hey, you know, no need to respond if this isn't for you. But this is this thing, this offer opportunity that I have. 
if that's uh-huh. something that could potentially be interesting to you, just give a shout back and, you know, we'll take it from there. So there's just no pressure in it, but you can mm. be reaching out, but it depends on the social norms in the context that you're in, right? And on LinkedIn, it's not that there's something wrong with reaching out immediately in general. It's just that on LinkedIn, there's a social norm that you connect with somebody and they don't do that. And it's not supposed to be a transaction and that it's supposed to be a relationship. And so if somebody reaches out immediately with a request, then they've turned it into a transaction and you're like, ugh. So like, All you need to do in this situation is go, okay, that's not the social norm. And it feels transactional if I do it immediately. And so why Mm. don't I do it a week later? And I just set a calendar reminder to reach out a week later and be like, oh, hey, here's this thing that I do. Is that something that you might be interested in? I love that. So yeah, thank you for talking to that. Because I think there's a real uh, epidemic going on right now (laughs) Uh, with um, salespeople going zero to 100 real quick. But I think in life, because we're so used to instant gratification and you talk about the path of least resistance, us getting things so easily through Uber or we have Deliveroo here or whatever it might be, you get things quick. So you think in life it should happen the same but this segues beautifully into oh sorry go on can we just spend a tiny bit more time on this because it's so context and situation specific there are many many situations where really you should be following up immediately Mm. so don't let anyone listening to this call think like oh whatever it is that i want to do i'm going to set a reminder for a week from now no typically when you've had a conversation with somebody or when they have responded to that LinkedIn note where you said, is this something you might potentially be interested in? And they say, yes, this is kind of like when you're at a restaurant and you've asked for the check. When you've asked for the check, it has to come immediately. If it takes four minutes, you're like, oh my God, what's taking them so long? And you're going to want to leave a lower tip. Um, When somebody has said, yes, I'm open to the idea, or when they have offered to do you a favor, right? When they've said, yes to something, then generally you want to follow up immediately because that it's a moment of truth where they're saying, yes, I'm open to your influence. Go ahead and share that thing, follow up, schedule the next step, whatever that is. Then you want to be quick. Ah, uh, That's great because what you're saying there is, is they've raised their hand. So ultimately meet them with where they're at now and strike while the iron is hot, right? Strike while yeah, the iron is hot. Yeah, you don't want their arm to get tired. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, give them a high five, meet them where they're at, people. But, you know, there's something which I really noticed about you through different podcasts that I was listening to, but also just us hanging out for about 10 minutes before the show really began. And is you're such a great listener. You're very present, but you're also, you know, you asked me a question. You said, Ravi, is there anything that you're working on right now that you're really passionate about? And I was like, oh, man, like, I don't think I've been asked a question like that from anybody who's been on my show. So I was like, this is fascinating. It really, I was like, man, she's got so much charisma. And I know you are very big on studying charisma. And I think every person on the planet, it doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur, a salesperson, they want more charisma. So my question here for you is, is how do you define charisma? And can it be taught? Or is it something that you pop out the womb and you're born with? So I'm glad to answer that question. And also thank you for the compliment. But I'm very curious to hear from you. You are super charismatic. And this is actually why I said yes to the podcast. 
So there were other things that would also need to be in place for me to say yes to doing this interview. But a huge factor there is that you're so charismatic and charming to listen to. Have you developed that in a specific way? Well, thank you. I received the compliment. I'm not very good at receiving compliments. That's my thing. I'm like, okay, I receive that. I will embody that. So thank you. You know what? I haven't thought about it for myself specifically and dissected myself, but I think that if I can look at different moments in my life, which have shaped me into the human that I am today, I talk about two specific moments a lot. And I talk about my mom, the way she Mr. Miyagi'd me when I was a kid. And if you're a karate kid fan, you know what I'm talking about, right? And I got thrown into the same dance school as my sister when I was around eight or nine years old. And at the time I was fuming, Zoe. I was like, oh, but deep down over time, I was like, man, this is amazing. I've never felt more alive. And what she was actually teaching me was a lesson in stage presence, a lesson in uh, nonverbal communication, body language. And then I stumbled into theater as a teen and that's where I really learned storytelling. So I feel like these in seemingly insignificant moments at the time have taught me different things about communication, which has really led me to my purpose and mission that I'm on now. But if you are asking me what... I believe makes somebody charismatic really, for example, what you exhibited at the beginning of the call was being interested in the other person versus focusing on being interesting, which is really powerful. Second thing is being very comfortable in your own skin. And you can really feel that energy when somebody is being them or they're being somebody else. I think you can really see that on the online world. Uh, and the other thing as well is just being a very, very good listener. I, I don't know about you, but when I feel seen and heard by somebody, I'm like, oh my God, I love them. Yeah, they're my best friend. Like, yes. you just, you, you know what I mean? So what's your take on that? I'm curious. About the feeling of being seen and heard and overall what charisma is. This is an interesting entree because we're going to see two different styles of it. But I have not intended to study charisma, but I've just been asked to teach people charisma because when I ask people, what skill of influence or persuasion do you most want to develop? Charisma is the most common one. And I was like, oh God, I don't feel charismatic at all. I don't have, I don't know anything about it. Started researching it. And um, not only is it hard for people to define but in academic research, the dominant model has seven different factors, and you just can't Whoa. do seven different things at once. However, when I've asked people, hundreds or maybe now thousands of them, to describe three qualities of a charismatic person, whoever pops into your head, what I've found is that not all of them, maybe 85% of those qualities boil down to two factors, which is connection and confidence. It doesn't have to be warm. We've talked about warmth on this show there are people who can connect deeply with their own followers who are also very divisive and some people even find them evil. Like Hitler is someone who comes up as an example of a charismatic person, but he was able to connect deeply with his followers. You also see that you don't have to be loud or extroverted to connect with people. Another person on the other end of the spectrum who comes up is the Dalai Lama. He's not at all loud. He's very, very quiet, but he has this incredible presence and this ability to have other people feel seen or heard or understood. That's the connection part. 
And then the comfortable in your own skin is the confidence part. So you've essentially, Ravi, just described these two factors of charisma that come up organically. And this is not in my book, by the way. It's something that I teach in the class. But what's cool as well in introducing it in this way is that you talked about me when we were first meeting each other, asking you questions and being curious and interested, which I totally am, as one way of being charismatic, which all of us can do more of. We can ask questions. And especially for everyone listening, don't just challenge yourself to ask more questions, but challenge yourself to ask more follow-up questions. Research by Alison Wood Brooks and some of her colleagues at Harvard has found that it's the follow-up questions that are the key to having the other person really feel that you're interested in them. And so don't just do it in a transactional way so they feel you're interested. Like actually ask the things that you are (laughs) interested in. And they've shown this in professional situations and also in speed dating situations. So follow-up questions are key. But then Ravi, when, so my perception of you being charismatic was listening to you, including the first episode that I listened to was you telling stories without a guest. So it's you sharing stories, which is what you do for a living, right? Is showing other people how to tell charismatic and interesting, engaging stories, connecting with other people. And when you're telling a story, there's a huge difference between am I focused on myself and being the center of attention or am I telling a story with the objective of connecting with someone or serving someone or entertaining someone, right? Like stand-up comedians, they're there on their own. <laughs> but they, if they connect with you and you're laughing and you feel heard, and a lot of times what we're laughing at when we go to a comedy show is we're laughing at a new perception that we get of ourself because of the way somebody shared this. So Ravi, when you share the story about having, you know, getting thrust into your sister's dance class by your mom, I'm not even a boy, right? I have never been a boy, but I could totally imagine how appalling and shameful and embarrassing this would be. So then all of us listening, we connect with our own stories of feeling embarrassed in these situations where our parents made us do this, these embarrassing kinds of things. So we can connect with people by asking them questions in conversation, but we can also connect with them, even just sharing stories that they can relate to. Well, thank you, Zoe. I appreciate the observation. And the beautiful thing about comedians is the best ones, you can see themselves in the main character of their joke. That's why the connection is so beautiful. You can see themselves in the challenges and the desires and the transformation. You're like, wow, like it it just feels so dope. And listen, I know we're up against time. I want to do a part two, a part three and a part four, but I'm conscious of your time here. Um, I'd love to do more episodes with you. But let me ask you this, Zoe. Let's say if in the next 24 hours, everything you've ever written, spoke about, everything was erased. and you could only give the world one tip on how to be a more influential communicator. I'm curious to know in less than 30 seconds, what would it be? The magic question is what would it take? And I'm a little bit hesitant about sharing this with a sales audience because the key to the magic question is that you have to have rapport first before you say, what would it take? So you don't lead with this magic question. What would it take? There are all kinds of reasons that what would it take is incredibly, incredibly powerful, but I will just put it out there for people to discover on their own how magic this magic question is. 
It's magic. It really is. It's such a simple yet effective tip that is inside of Zoe's book, as well as deep listening, really deep listening, going back to what salespeople and entrepreneurs, if you're listening to this right now, being a great listener, I mean, no one says, oh my God, you're a great listener. You should be in sales. They say the opposite. They go, you're a great speaker. You know, you're fantastic. You should be in sales. And it's like, no, it should be the opposite. So ladies and gentlemen, you need to check out Zoe's book. Final question for you, my friend here is, as you know, the show is called The Influential Communicator. My question to you is, is you're just a fountain of knowledge with all things communication, but who do you look up to as somebody who's an influential communicator? I look up to Alexandria Octavio Cortez. She's an American politician. She's a progressive, outspoken voice for the green revolution and also for social equality. And regardless of your politics and where you live, she is one of the best communicators on the planet. The specific thing that she does incredibly, incredibly well is framing. And she also demonstrates warmth, like very few people do. She's a divisive figure, but she, and and she's widely hated. She gets death threats all the time. Oh my gosh, really? Oh yeah. She gets maybe more death threats than any other American politician. And there's, there's a lot of sexism and racism that goes into that as well. But yeah, she's She's my hero. And this is, I haven't told anybody except for a couple of people in my life, but she's my hero so much that I actually bought a print of this painting on Etsy that is this painting of AOC with a halo of flowers and she's glowing and she's looking like Mother Mary. So um, this is at my house. Yes, it's not in my office where I have a lot of other art, but yeah, she's, she's my person. She's younger than I am by a Mm. significant amount she came from she was just a waitress before she became a representative in the house of representatives she was a waitress and she's very charismatic she's a brilliant communicator and she's so Mm. dedicated to the cause that she's willing to stand up again and again and again every day even with the death threats she gets and when they there was a january 6th insurrection where the capital was stormed she was one of the main targets so she literally believed that she was going to die on this day, people were coming to get her and to hear her describe that day, to hear her describe any of the issues that she cares about. She's moving the needle in very powerful ways. Wow. That is amazing. And by the way, ladies and gents, you just heard an exclusive. Zoe's not told anybody about that painting. So you've got an exclusive here, people. You know, I I would have loved to as well. We'd have to talk about this another time. But this other thing that I think we all do as human beings a lot, and it's say sorry, 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 sorry. And a long time ago, I think it must have been a couple of years ago, I heard David Meltzer say substitute sorry with thank you for your patience, for example, if you're late for a meeting. And I and I saw you really discuss that in depth in your book as well. So ladies and gents, you need to check out Zoe's book. If this hasn't blown your mind, I'm telling you the book is tactical, it's strategic, it's warm, and it's things that you can actually use, not in just business, but in life. So Zoe, where can people learn more about the book, but also learn more about what you're up to and support you? 
Thank you. It's easy to find all of that on my website, which is www.zoechance.com, Z-O-E, or I should say Z-O-E-C-H-A-N-C-E.com. And I have a free influence newsletter that you can sign up for and get tips if you want. I'm also donating half of the profits from the book to organizations fighting climate change. So you're doing oh, good amazing. if you decide to support it. And for everyone who's looking for the tactical help, you don't need to read the whole entire book from start to finish. And a lot of people don't notice unless I tell you that there's a list at the back of the book that's an index of the tools and techniques, like the magic question is one that we talked about. The kindly brontosaurus is another one people get excited about. Deep listening and the empathy challenge. So you could just skip to the back of the book and then just go to those pages that feel relevant for you. You know, one thing I want to acknowledge you for, Zoe, that you do extremely well is there's a lot of people that talk about influence and it's sometimes hard to pinpoint scientifically re in a research-driven way and also a practical way how to actually become more influential. And I just think you do it so, so well because you, you're able to fuse all of them together. So, hey, I appreciate you. We appreciate you. Ladies and gents, if you enjoyed this episode, you know what you need to do. You need to go down to the show notes. You need to click the link, which will take you to Zoe's website. You can learn more about what she's up to. But I'll see you next week for another episode. Thanks, Zoe. See you, ladies and gents. Peace. Oh, okay, okay, hold on. So you thought that this was the part of the show where I say something like, okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you did enjoy the show, then please drop us a review and do share it with a friend. Well, I'll tell you what, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to be predictable here, okay? Do share it with a friend and do drop us a review if you got some value from today's episode, okay? So if you want to impact people, remember, you need to learn how to influence them first.